0: The story of the year, no doubt about it, unquestionably, when you take a look at it, um, will be this one, especially when it comes to international news. It's going to be right at the top of the list, the Russian invasion of Ukraine and everything that's happened in the months following. It started the 24th of February. That's when the invasion took place. And as you know, it is far, far from over. In the meantime, thousands of people have died. Hundreds of thousands have been displaced, many of them ending up here. Um, international economics have been stressed in any number of ways. You talk about the price of fuel, you talk about supply chains, you talk about the price of food, the list goes on and on and on. It's had a massive geopolitical impact. And as I say, there is really no end in sight, at least not at this point. So let's sort of see if we can't get a bit of a bird's eye view of this whole situation, where it started, where it's gone, and where it might be headed. We're going to chat with Andrew Rasulis, who we've talked to before, a defense expert with the Canadian Global Affairs Institute. Andrew, thanks for joining us. I really appreciate your time.
1: Hi, Shay. Glad to wrap up the year with you, yeah,
0: I mean, what a year it's been Hey, right like this yeah. started this started more than nine months ago now now, if we go back to when this started, I think most of us, certainly I did, and I'm no expert. maybe I was completely out to lunch, but a lot of the thinking was, well, this is going to be relatively short and violent, like Russia would accomplish their goals quite quickly, being the power they are. That's what the expectation was, wasn't it?
1: everybody thought that uh the West thought that Western intelligence thought that. Russians thought that. Russian intelligence thought that. Putin thought that. So, surprise, surprise, Ukrainians didn't think that. And that upset the apple cart. So, basically, in a very short summary, Putin uh, was trying. What, this was all about, from Putin's perspective, they, he started the war, so you have to understand why he does it. Basically, he is against NATO enlargement. That, take it, that's what he says. Okay, so now he launched, after much debate, dialogue with the Americans. Unsatisfactory from the Russian point of view, he launches a military operation, saying, I've got it. This is my only option. So he goes for it, thinking he could wrap this up in weeks with a daring airborne operation, seize uh, the capital, do a regime change, so on and so forth. Well, it doesn't work. The Ukrainians stand up. Everything gets bogged down. The Russians retreat, and a different kind of war starts. The long war now. This is the war in the East or in the Donbass, in Kharkiv, and this is where we are today.
0: Um, So we were surprised by Russia's ineffectiveness. Were we equally surprised by the effectiveness of the Ukraine resistance? I think a lot of people were really taken aback by just how much resolve there was there, if nothing else.
1: Exactly. Uh, so a combination. Yes, exactly what you said. Uh, the Ru- we thought the Russians would do a lot better. The Russians did very poorly in their little war with Georgia in the summer of 2008. And the Russians then went through a major reform of their army and, and military since then. And everyone thought that they had a first class military force in place as a result of those reforms. And the Ukrainians, everyone thought, well, you know, it's a lot of corruption there. There's a lot of less motivation there. You know, they won't stand it. Well, they did. And it's very interesting. And, and the Russian military reforms appeared to have been not as effective as we thought they were. So lessons learned. And here we are today in a bogged down Western World War I type front, now in eastern Ukraine.
0: Um, Now, the international community in the response, like you say, sort of surprised at the beginning, but also really, really heavily involved at this point in a number of different ways. So let's start with the international community and their involvement militarily and what kind of a difference that has made to where we are.
1: Yeah, so one of the very first things about this war, and it was announced by Biden before the war actually started, he said... You know, we have to recall, like, a war war is looming. And he knew it was basically coming. But he said, you know, Ukraine is not part of NATO. If a war starts, everyone should know, everyone, that NATO will not go to war with Russia over Ukraine. We will not have World War Three. Mm-hmm. but we will then provide everything all assistance short of that. Right. So basically, no NATO forces on the ground. That's why we didn't do the no-fly zone thing, because that would have required Western Air Force assets to become involved in essentially into a war. But uh, NATO, uh, as individual countries, not as an organization, has provided an immense amount of equipment. And, but, you know, we have to recognize the Americans are supplying basically more than everybody else combined. Right? So everyone's there. Canada's done its bit. But it's really the United States is the arsenal here that has allowed the Ukrainians to keep this war going. It's been the Ukrainian soldiers that have been doing the dying and the fighting, American and Western, but I have to emphasize, a lot of American stuff is going in and continuing to pour in.
0: What about the economic? I mean, we've seen so many sanctions. We've seen all kinds of action taken by the international community. Has that proven to be as effective? I mean, how much of an impact do you think that's had on, you know, sort of thwarting the Russian advance?
1: great question so i think uh i think there's been an uh, overestimation on the effect of sanctions yeah um, and and clearly the russian uh are the russians are able to function their economy is functioning their military industry is functioning and their war machine is functioning and now they are suffering. The, 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 the sanctions are having effect, but not sufficient to stop them doing what they're doing. And the Western assumption was, in the early days, you know, we will stop the Russian war machine with these sanctions. And maybe the oligarchs will rise up and overthrow Putin. And all these sort of theories were being played out. None of that has come to pass. The Russians have adjusted. They have done workarounds. They are using simpler systems. They have, but they have lots of stuff, simple stuff. And they have resilience too. So they, we're now into that other phase of, you know, Russians we tend to either overestimate them, underestimate them, but they're, they're into the grinding yeah. phase.
0: Yeah, just grinding it out. You know, and we talk about the surprising you know, resilience of Ukraine and and how well they've done uh, much better than people had expected. But we can't overlook the fact that they have suffered greatly, Uh, you know, not only in loss of life, but loss of infrastructure. I mean, this is it's not a success story by any stretch of the imagination.
1: Oh, no, it's a story. It's a story of uh, of defense, uh, of standing up for Ukrainian nationalist perspectives and so on. So heroic defense by all means. But with that heroic defense comes a huge cost, Uh, lives lost, the amount of people that are suffering and, they, and you know, because of all the uh, power outages and so on. Yeah. So not only are people being killed in the actual kinetic war, the combat war, but also in the, the loss of power and so on. There are people dying because of loss of energy and so on, you know, and people, sick people who just don't get the care they need, they die. So the point is that they, they are suffering immensely by, by, by this, and the question then becomes, and then the other, the one more point about that, the lives lost uh general miley uh, a couple of weeks ago uh, american uh, chairman of the joint chiefs said you know roughly america uh, uh, ukrainians and russians are both have lost roughly 100,000 in casualties that's dead dead and wounded on both sides okay but you have to remember the Ukrainian numbers of people are much less than the Russian number of people. They, although they both went to war with roughly the same amount of troops, two hundred thousand apiece, and then they so each has lost fifty percent. But the Russians have more people they can draw on over time. The Ukrainians have limited amount of people yeah. uh, that they can put into the fight. Uh, so this, and I think in percentage terms, is affecting Ukraine more. And now this will be the challenge. You know, how long can it be sustained in twenty twenty three? We don't know, but it, but it's a challenge.
0: Yeah, I mean. I guess that's the question we're, we're sort of trying to read the tea leaves looking at the crystal ball where do we go from here are we any closer to an end now than we were back on february twenty fourth I don't think so are we
1: well I mean uh, it's that that's hard to tell let me just I can't predict but let me tell you the situation so the, the militarily right now we are in a bogged down situation the Russians are doing a limited attack on a place called Bakhmut in in, in the donbass the Russians have been doing limited uh attacks in the south on uh, in, in Kherson trying to put pressure on crimea but we are now into the muddy season so people talk about winter winter you can fight in winter when the ground freezes the worst part is now which is late fall when the ground becomes mud and and there have been interesting photographs from the media of trench lines uh, uh that show ukrainian troops in the trench and british troops in the trenches in world war one they look almost identical. There's water in the trenches, trees are shattered, all that stuff. The question then becomes how long, uh, like when the winter comes, the ground freezes, Ukrainians have said they're going to resume the offensives. And so let's assume they will. They probably will. Now, how long will they be able to sustain that? How long will the support in the West? And here, let me draw your attention to the United States and their political situation. The Americans still, the, the Democrats control the House, the, the, the Senate. But in the House, they have lost control to the Republicans. And the Republicans, there's, a, there's an element of Republicans, the Libertarian Republicans, who have been saying we need more, uh, vetting of the, of the funds and so on. Now they lost a vote yesterday on that. Mm-hmm. But they're there. They're 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 going to come back on this one, and there's another poll in the U.S. of 49 percent of Americans, roughly, uh, saying that you know we we need to explore a solution to end the war. So it's not that there is a fatigue right now that says it's going to stop. But as we move into 2023, as we move into a winter warfare campaign, which we should, we should expect fighting in the winter, uh, what's going to be the spring like? How it's a This is all about sustainability. How long can both sides? And everybody who's supporting uh, everybody sustained this. That's the question for twenty twenty
0: three. We hear every once in a while, you know, the prospect of negotiation being raised as a, as a way to end this. How realistic is that in your thinking?
1: Well, it, yes. And, and this past week, the, the, these voices have come back. Uh, I mean, uh, Macron has talked about it, the French president. Uh, Schultz, the, the German chancellor, has talked about it. But at the end of the and, and and even Putin has talked about it, and Biden has talked about it. But the point is that there's no b- political basis to do it. There was just sort of a talk about it would be good to negotiate an end to the war. Yes, but on what <laughs> political basis? There we have a huge problem because there's no, no uh, consensus whatsoever between uh, the East and the West, or, or Russia and the West, in terms of uh, a settlement. Yeah. So that means, in brutal terms, there has to be more bloodletting, more attritional warfare, until the attrition changes the political calculus of all concerned. That's when, at some point in time, and it will happen at some point, all wars end, uh, there will be a most likely a ceasefire rather than a political settlement. You come to the point where you say, further bloodletting does not advance my political objectives. When both sides come to that point, they have a ceasefire. They did this in Korea in 1953 as an example.
0: Um- Last one, I'll let you go, and I really appreciate your time. We're chatting with Andrew Rusoulos, who's a defense expert with the Canadian Global Affairs Institute. Um, So, when this is over and done, however it ends, regardless, whatever, if it's if it's a month, a year, five years, I don't know, how has the world changed? I think we've got a new view of Russia, and and how much of a force they really are, Uh, and I think we know NATO has been changed, we've got new additions, new members, Ukraine is now knocking on the door. I mean, how does the world geopolitically change as a result of what we've seen in 2022
1: fundamentally, this is an inflection point. So we now have uh, power politics uh, in a, in a big way, geopolitics. Uh, you have the West, uh, you have NATO, uh, and there and that's re- being reinforced. So it's getting stronger and stronger. You have on the other side uh, uh, alternate groupings, looser, looser, like the Chinese, the Russians, the Iranians. You know, these are people who are on the outs with the West, but they are working together. They're not. They don't like each other that much, but, you know, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And so that's there's this other grouping taking place. And the third world, or the, what we call third world, but the, the, the southern world, um, they're they're desperate for resources. They're desperate for food, grain, uh, oil still, you know, and this is affecting them. And, of course, the Russians are using that as an instrument to keep curry their favor. Yeah. So the world... Yeah, we're an inflection point. There was a world of 2021, let's say, and the world now whenever this war ends. But it's shifting. There is a new world order being created as a result of this. How the war ends will then finalize where we end up. And we, I cannot tell you how that will look.
0: Yeah, exactly. I mean, it is fascinating to watch, though. And uh, we always uh, value your insight and your analysis as we go along. Andrew, thanks so much.